Hello, fellow time travellers. I'm Colin Baker, and you are listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club podcast. Enjoy your travels. My apologies for how low-tech this is going to be, but this is how we do it. Hello, time travelers, and welcome back to the Doctor Who Target Book Club, the podcast in which we undertake the substantial task of discussing in story order all the Doctor Who novelizations. My name is Tony Whit, and those of you listening at home may notice that our sound quality is slightly better and more professional because we are not recording in my living room for once. Oh, heavens no. We are recording instead live at the best Doctor Who themed convention in the Midwest, Chicago TARDIS. So, welcome, everybody. Uh, Today we have an equally substantial three-person discussion panel, including our so-called expert, who's been a Who fan since 1979, that would be me. There's also our novice fan, who's seen little to none of the original series and has not previously read any of the books, except for the ones we've done for this podcast, and then this time around, it is the wise and witty Alison Fitch Seyfried. Hello, Alison. Something I've never said before on this podcast, good morning. Good morning, yes, because we normally record these very late, and we usually have alcohol, and we have neither at this point, so we're a little... Anyway, and finally, we have our returning celebrity guest panelist, an expert in his own right and webmaster of the late and long-lamented website Barbara's Big Buffon, the one and only Trey Corte. Hello, Trey. Hello. Hello. Before we get to talking about the book, let's remind listeners and viewers of our Patreon page, which is at DWTargetBC. Depending on the amount you give per month, you'll receive a randomly chosen BBC book, not a Target book, because we know you have all of them and you don't want them, as a gift for supporting us, just to say thank you for being willing to help us stay on the virtual air. Please check out our page when we can. We'd like to thank two of our patrons who are here in the audience, at least they said they'd be. Uh, Bart Lemmy, which is over there. Hello. Thank you, Bart. And Rick Taylor, who is not here. That's unfortunate, but that's okay. We still love him anyway. There's also going to be a giveaway at the very end of the panel, so hold on to those flyers that I gave you because you never know. There might be something there. All right. This time, we're discussing John Peel's two-volume novelization of Terry Nation and Dennis Spooner's script for the Doctor Who story, The Daleks' Master Plan. Now, those of you who listen to the podcast will know what's coming next and that I can't possibly read it that quickly in person. I know, I could try, but I'm not going to do it. So instead, I'm going to do this again. Hopefully it will work. Oh, my God. And now, without further ado, here are some fast facts. Doctor Who, The Dalek's Master Plan, volumes 1 and 2, adapted by John Peele from the serial that aired from 11-13-65 to 1-29-66, published by Target Books in September and October 1989. As of this recording in November of 2017, this title is currently out of print, but is available as an unabridged BBC audiobook, 331 pages total. Isn't that cheesy? Okay. (laughs) 
Just imagine three months of Daleks. Three months. Week after week after week with a single break at Christmas time for good behavior. And then you get the Christmas episode too. I love Daleks and even I think that's excessive. It's ridiculous. But this idea apparently came from BBC managing director Hugh Weldon, whose mother-in-law felt the Daleks should be seen a lot more, and we mean a lot more. Probably a good business idea, but uh, the result was a 12-part story with one episode prologue making it the longest single story ever produced for the show. And yes, I know, Trial of a Time Lord, but I think we can all agree that that's actually four stories and under one umbrella, and it's not one long story like I would movie. totally disagree with that, but oh, that's a really? topic for probably like a year oh, or so from now God. and everything. You're just going to ruin it for all of us, aren't you, Trey? Yes. But yeah, that's fine. That's fine. And we wouldn't have you on if you didn't disagree every once in a while. Um, anyway, this was decided upon by outgoing producer Verity Lambert. So incoming producer John Weil saw it as an imposition, so much so that on top of having to argue with William Hartnell constantly, he turned in his resignation during the production of the story, and Donald Tosh, his script editor, also resigned out of, um, out of loyalty. Yeah, so they left over the story. Needless to say, this story is in some ways a massive boondoggle. So any novel is it a load of old tosh? Oh, <laughs> Trey, Trey, Trey! It's too early in the morning for that, especially without alcohol. It's the crack of brunch, is what it oh, is. Oh <laughs> God, it's going to be one of those days. Okay, that's fine. Luckily, luckily, they got John Peel to novelize these for us, and John Peel was authorized by the Terry Nation Estate to write these books. And after the successful adaptation of The Chase, which we listened to a, f uh, a few months ago, listened to, we read it, yes. you listened to it, there we go, that's how it works in podcasting, um, it restored a lot of nations, better ideas, and it sloughed off a lot of the silly humor, which some people like, I'm not a fan of it. Problem is, Peel wanted it to be a single volume, including Mission to the Unknown, while Target wanted to split it into two, Target got their wish, which meant they got more money out of it, obviously. But this decision allowed Peel the chance to insert a six-month gap between the two volumes, uh, allowing future writers a chance to write more stories with Stephen and Sarah Kingdom, which Big Finish has taken adequate uh, advantage of. So you can still hear them in audio, even if you can't hear Hartnell, because he did. So, anyway... <laughs> Um, let's talk about some of this, shall we? In fact, let's get some first impressions first, because we actually have the time to. So, Allison, what was your first impression when you uh, heard that you were going to be doing a two-volume novelization for this? Well, we read two chapters, uh, the second and third chapter of Vision to the Unknown um, for the standalone episode uh, for our previous podcast, and I was prepared for this to be a really long, hard, painful slog, uh, because I found it to be unnecessarily dense in plot, but not necessarily dense in enjoyment. And so this was actually quite a pleasant surprise to me. Also, the, the last full-length book we read was over 300 pages. That was a plotter, but that was published not as an adaptation, but as a proper novel. Right, Gareth Roberts. This was almost the same page count, and like half I spent half the actual time Ooh. reading it. It was actually uh, significantly less uh, densely plotted, and I was astounded to learn that this was 12 episodes long. So as Dalton would say, it was a quick read, it was an easy read? On the beach, yes. Yeah, on the beach. <laughs> there we go. All right, Trey? I mean, I think I, I read it way back when it was released, um, and I think it was an interesting comparison with The Chase, because that was a case of where I had seen the TV episodes, 
and then read the adaptation after. And then this was a reverse. I, for a long time, hadn't seen any of Dalek's master plan. And then, of course, we got the episodes released. So I remember my first impression was just being fascinating. I had always heard about this mythic 12-episode story. Mm. Yet I had very little ideas about what it was about. I knew some companions died. I knew that there was a guy named Mavic Chen. Oh, spoiler alert, and, companions die. And, well, we'll be talking about that anyway. <laughs> um, so a lot of it was just, I, I wasn't interested in so much the quality of the prose of the story, but it was just a lot of questions resolved. Oh, that was what the story is about. That's what happened in the story. And that was... Um, I would say that would be the experience with a lot of those stories that are missing from the archives. You got the novelization, you could finally say, oh, that's what happened. And then right. once you get the audios released, or if they get rediscovered, then you realize, like, oh, it didn't actually quite happen that way. No. And <laughs> that becomes an interesting thing. So I remember um, greatly enjoying it. And because of the nature of it, it's kind of like the chase where you go from place to place to place. Mm -hmm. um, it works both in the book's advantage and disadvantage, because no, no one plot line gets developed yeah. satisfactorily. Exactly. But at the same time, you never get tired of it, because as soon as this plot line's beginning to drag, then you're, they're on a different planet and something mm -hmm. else is happening. I tend to think of it as the chase 1.5. It's, it's the chase done seriously. Yeah, yeah, is it what really it is. is. It's, it's, the chase was played for laughs on TV. This was played for quite the opposite, mm -hmm. and that might be the different in script editor. Who knows? But yeah, and I'm almost certain that's what it was. And for the style of adaptation, I have the note here, breezily brutal. Significantly <laughs> well, yeah, darker in tone of, of prose and the actual events as well. I don't mean that as a criticism right. at all, um, but from the, the, the character deaths to also just the scenes of devastation, the wall of fire, the plants oh, yeah. that devour mm -hmm. in a way that I thought was actually a very nice change of pace. Okay, terrific. Um, let's talk about those companions, shall we? Because one of the other firsts about this story, in addition to its sheer length, is the fact that we get not one but two new companions, and they both die under horrible circumstances. <laughs> Katarina, who joined the TARDIS and the Mythmakers, was never meant to be an ongoing companion, mostly due to the difficulties of explaining things like doors and knobs and doorknobs to someone from a pre-technological society. But Sarah was considered for a long-term companion, and the only thing keeping her from continuing was Jean Marsh didn't want to do a series, whereas Katerina, the very first scene that she recorded was her death scene, mm. because they did the filmed insert several weeks before they did the videotape, and her final scene, I believe, is floating, her body floating in space, right. and they did that at Ealing. So that's the very first thing she recorded. So she knew she was not long for this world. <laughs> but yeah, so obviously, they get both a lot more fleshing out from Peel on the page than they ever get on screen, so what do we think of them? Let's start with Katarina, and let's start with Trey. Um, you know, Katarina is, there's this wonderful innocence about her, and so that pre-technological thing, it can, you can see it's a boondoggle for the writers that they constantly have to explain it, but it does give her a delightful innocence and naivety. She thinks the doctor's a god, she thinks, is, she thinks she's on her way to the afterlife, so there's this almost, um, you know, Greek tragedy sort of approach to the character. Literal fatalism. And, and so... 
and I think in her death scene, there's that beautiful moment where it really, because when you see the clip on the Blue Peter clip that exists, it's not really clear what's going on or right. why she's doing it. Exactly. And there's a sense that maybe she doesn't know what she's doing. Mm -hmm. But in the novelization, it's very clear that she knows this is a switch, and this is something she realized that she's the crux of the problem. She can help save the universe by removing herself from it, and right. she makes a choice. And it's, it's sad, and it's beautiful, and I think it gives a very minor character um, some dignity, yeah, and I really like that. Yeah, it almost goes back to um, she was just a servant girl, and no one will know how she saved the the world. And I can't remember which episode that is. Unquiet Dead. Thank and, you. But but so many stories in the new series follow yeah. that pattern. The the message of no one's un no one's unordinary. That everyone right. is special, and the smallest people can help make a difference. Yes. in ways that aren't appreciated. And I, yeah, I think that resonates very well. And it's the first time you see the doctor react in that way too. Mm. Yeah, that he has a very, very emotional reaction to her death. Obviously, well, it's the first time someone's died that's been under his care. Yeah, there's that too. So it it it's troubling. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, Allison, what do you think of Katarina? I like the use of the unreliable narrator where the doctor literally says that she seems to be stupid. And yes. <laughs> I think Stephen's a little bit more kind because she uh, nurses him uh, back from the brink of death. And Brett actually asks at one point, what is wrong with this girl? She doesn't seem to know anything in the way you might ask. Why is this engine defective? It makes a weird noise. <laughs> but she's consistently portrayed by Peel as being actually very competent with the information she has, arguably yeah. the most adaptable of the cast as she learns new information. Right. And I, I like the way he has the characters saying things about her that, that are continually disproved by how she actually performs, that she's mm -hmm. not stupid. She's not developmentally slower than the rest of them. She just doesn't have their accumulated knowledge. And I like the way that was tied by Stephen to the fact that he had a few centuries on Vicky. Right. And now he knows how Vicky must have felt. Mm -hmm. And of course, the doctor has many centuries on him. That's true. And I, I thought that he nicely placed that hierarchy that he had been part of that he hadn't really understood before mm -hmm. it's, until it's, her. She's kind of a precursor to Leela in many ways. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. You know, the, the primitive but intelligent mm -hmm. and... I like what you said about the adaptability, the way she fits everything into this narrative about gods and afterlives and, mm -hmm. you know, takes a, which is actually a very reasonable reaction given her cultural background. Right. And it's also kind of a dry run for uh, Jamie McCrimmon because yeah. he's also from a pre-tech yeah. society, but he ends up being so incredibly adaptable that that's easy to forget in later stories. And we'll be meeting Jamie in a couple months. Yeah, I think it's a couple months. At least April, May, somewhere. I don't know. Someone's got the schedule someplace. Anyway. Highland Spring. Highland Spring. Remember, my place on the panel is I have no idea what's coming. <laughs> yes, exactly. Well, and related to that, I did not realize that everyone was going to die. Oh, really? Yes. You well, didn't actually, see I didn't know coming. that Katarina was going to die. That was so heavily foreshadowed. More like Chekhov's bazooka than Chekhov's rifle. <laughs> <laughs> but actually, Sarah Kingdom dying was a surprise to me because I thought, oh, this is, they're oh, setting really? up to be the new companion. Oh, so, yeah. so if you don't know what's coming from outside cultural knowledge, the way the novel structure, that is a surprise. Yeah, well, that's a good transition to talking about Sarah then because she kind of was intended to be the new companion, but, you know, Jean Marsh had better things to do as Upstairs, Downstairs proved. Um, later, of course. But uh, what did you uh, think of Sarah, Allison? 
I thought that it was going to be a rather flat narrative of here is this very tough woman who cares only about death and killing, and now she's going to, uh, you know, learn about love and life from Steve, this schlub who just thinks about how hot she is every time he meets her, and in a way that is really uh, described in quite banal terms. She's very attractive. She's good looking. Like, is there any specific way in which? Mm -hmm. um, and they did not go in that direction. I didn't think that she was portrayed as being. Um, single-minded until her heart was melted by love. She actually had a fairly, mm, an arc that was very predictable, but did have a sort of a full range of reasonableness within it. Right. And um, I thought that for one-time companions, there was no, neither one of them was the standard issue dame that, that Peel writes. So they, they were quite distinct characters in their development. Mm -hmm. Okay, Trey? Um, I'd agree with that. I think the, you know, when he said about the archetype, she's a sort of kick-ass person who would be melted by love. You know, it made me think of so many of the... so boring. And it made me think of a lot of the James Bond girls, oh, yeah. which would have been very contemporaneous with Bond mania happening in 1965. Yes. So, you know, she's cut from the same mold. I mean, her costume looks like Emma Peel from the Avengers. She's actually... Like, is and as she is. Knockoff, is it yeah, well, it's, she's yeah. based on Kathy Gale more than anything else. Okay, so yeah. what, that would be also Pussy Galore, same actress. Yes. And so, so and I think that, I think the TV story from what we have plays a little bit more. She is hardened and then she's softened, but you don't, it's not because she falls in love. I think yeah. it's just the influence of the doctor and Stephen just being good people. Yes. As opposed to they're so dashing. I mean, you could maybe, they could have maybe gone that route with Stephen and I think it's neat that they didn't. Yeah. What I like is um, there's the bit of the vengeance narrative where once she realizes she's killed her brother and has been misled, but then she's beginning to realize there's more to life than vengeance. And I really like how that, um, Peel humanizes her in a way that's not really shown on screen. Yeah. And I think maybe that six-month gap has something to do with it because mm -hmm. they're just going from point A to point B and there's no time for her. They, she's this regretted hardened killer and then they do the Christmas episode and she's playing it for comic relief yes. and then she's just a normal companion. Exactly. And, and that so I think that, that so prologue wrongly. in part two really, really adds to it. Mm -hmm. and Again, I think the dignity that's given in her death scene where she's almost kind of visualizing Brett's ghost talking to her as yes. she's aging, I think it's really, really well done. And that's something that's not conveyed mm -hmm. on the script. We just you know, we have pictures of her aging, but that's right. about it. And we have that recurring nightmare that Peel gives her of her brother coming back to haunt her, which is just brilliant narratively, and it adds so much to the character. So, yeah, but we don't get any of that on screen. I like that the passive aggression of Ian and Barbara is, instead of becoming just the standard issue uh, way that these new companions behave, is replaced by a more open aggressiveness. Uh, so, you know, quote I've got here where, you know, you'll do as I say and wait here, the doctor ordered. Well, how long are you going to be, demanded Sarah, that she uh, behaves like the character she's described as, this mm -hmm. pr security professional. Stephen is able to behave more as an astronaut which I've been waiting for for several books. Yes. The time he really takes offense is when he feels the doctor is disparaging a really spiffy spaceship. He shouldn't talk about it that way. <laughs> and so uh, I, I like that they are able to behave as a character as they are instead of being constantly bewildered for no good reason. Yeah, yeah, I agree, I agree. Um, and also, we need to talk about the villains because <laughs> we very briefly get the meddling monk back in this story. And because Peel's added or changed so much about it, there's actually a reason plot-wise for him to be there. The doctor needs his directional unit to get back to Kemble. 
which almost gets lost in the televised version, but it's really, it's really kind of emphasized in the book. How do we feel about him being back? Because you've... I love the meddling monk. I was very excited, did not know that he was coming, and was sad to see him go. Oh, really? (laughs) Yeah. I I like him as a comedic foil, and I like the... I actually don't like Peele's prose that much. It's not as Mm -hmm. rich as Whitaker. It's not as humorous as Cotton. But I like remembering what he wrote, if that makes sense, because he has some very nice visuals that are not elegantly described, but I can see a great descriptions of the scene so the monk walking around his mirrored shades oh yeah for example is, is, is a great <laughs> image so I, I found him wonderful comic relief okay trey i liked it um you know i don't think you know i didn't have the surprise because again i knew he was going to be there um again first time reading i re- remembered that somehow he had appeared and popped up so again it was very i was very interesting to see how it is and I do think it's cool that there's some misdirection where mm-hmm. you, they, they are, they're in the TARDIS and they see some, there's a time machine following us and we're kind of meant to think it's the Daleks. Yes. But the Daleks at the, at the same time are trying to test the, the Terranium core. So you're like, well, no, it can't be them. So what's going on? And mm-hmm. then you realize, oh, it's the monk. And so it, there is a bit of a misdirection. I'm just, I'd be very curious to know how TV audiences responded to that at the time. Had there yeah. been any sort of publicity? Because it's the first time we've had a recurring villain. It really is. And, and and another Time Lord. Of course, not under that name, but yeah, exactly. So I think it's I think it's funny. I think it's a little bit um, tonally I'm not sure it works because yeah. it is it's I think maybe it's a nice transition because you have the comic Christmas episode, then you have the New Year's episode where he's there. Oh yes, that's right. And then you've got the Egyptian runaround, which could almost be lighthearted, but then it ends with the slaughter of Egyptians. Oh yes. And so then that's where it gets tonally strange. Yeah, it really does. And it, if you track the tone of the televised story, it really does that kind of weird, like, <laughs> yeah, it gets very, very light, and then it gets very, very dark. Well, it's where book. Dennis Spooner takes over. Yes, yes. You know, and the because... writing, because you know, it got too much for Terry Nation to handle, so they bring in. <laughs> Dennis Spooner, who was known for comedy, so mm-hmm. you've got these comic sections. Exactly, exactly. Before and they go back to Kemble and it gets serious again. I have a feeling that this story would not have been nearly so good had it not been for Spooner. No. Yeah, yeah, it just wouldn't have been. Whereas the novelization, we can also say, would not have been as good had it not been for John Peel. Right? Correct. Yeah, because I can't, I can't imagine this book in the hands of somebody like. I'm sorry, Terrence Dix. I really just can't see Terrence Dix doing a good job with this. I could see someone like uh, Malcolm Hulkey probably doing it, but then why would he? Yeah, there'd be no reason for him to. Ian Martyr. Ian Martyr. It's a very Ian Martyr story because it's so violent and everything. He would have done a. But then he would have put the sex in. Because uh, we've talked about Ian Martyr and the fact that he puts sex in novelizations as much as he possibly can. Yeah, we're, we're doing this family-friendly. You'll have to go back to um, our discussion of the rescue because, good God, that man, such right. a pervert. Anyway, God rest his soul. Um, yes, what about the way Peel handles what easily could have turned into a walking, talking Asian stereotype, Mavic Chen? The glory is we can't see him. That's true. So if you don't imagine Yellow Peril, it's not there. <laughs> well, after the initial description of him as being, he doesn't actually say this phrase stereotypically Asian, but he seems to be saying, you know, yeah. visualize what you've seen in the most offensive B-movie from the 30s, and it's that guy, but then it doesn't come oh, yeah. up again in his speech patterns, so I thought oh, yeah. that oh, you it's could, worse you than could you easily think. take out half a dozen words in the Yellow Peril 
framing of it wouldn't even be there. Yeah, exactly. Well, and I think a big part of it, the character becomes instantly less problematic when you don't have an actor in yellow face makeup. Yeah. And I'm not even sure it is yellow face makeup. No. I mean, it's in black and white, but it's much darker than what much we had. Darker. And they're doing some other interesting things because um, once we got Day of Armageddon back, there's a close-up of him writing in his nails. Yeah, he's are got really different ridiculously press-on nails. Yeah, he's got press-on nails that are white. So I don't know if, if it was meant to be you know, this idea of a mixed-race character or something that, that would have been in the future. And I guess on one level we could look at it as positive that the guardian of the solar system is not a white male. Right, you know, true. So that, that shows some progress there. But he's evil and corrupt. But again, wow. it kind of goes back to if we <laughs> think about supervillains with you know, Asian-sounding names. I mean, it reminds me of Ming the Merciless. Yes. And so you do bring in it. But apart from the physical description, it's forgotten about, and he's just another megalomaniac. And yeah. so I didn't... I think the, the area where I saw more racial problems was in the Egyptian section because oh, there's that yeah. character of Hyksos that they keep referring to these as a swarthy foreigner. Oh, God. And yeah. I didn't understand that because, <laughs> okay, if it's in Egypt, they're to all whom? going to be darker complexed. <laughs> to whom is he foreign? And so, but then it never explains, if he's foreign to Egypt, it never explains where he came from or why he's there because it's such a minor character. So is this just casual racism because they're in Egypt? But it's and oh. it was such a... Silly throwaway line, but it, it bothered me, yeah. and it really stood out this time around. Almost makes you it. want to say, "Who's Hicksos when he's at home?" Right. It's like, <laughs> "Where's home for him?" Yeah. yeah, it really is bizarre. So Mavic Ten just ends up kind of becoming just the typical megalomaniac on the page. I don't think it works as well because what we lose from the page is that the petty bitchiness that exists between him and the Dalek, and the way he yes. taunts the Daleks. Oh, yeah. And, the, and you know, they lost a train named Korra, and Mavic's a, the Dalek's like, we are superior, and, and Mavic says, really? <laughs> <laughs> and they can't exterminate him, but you can tell they want to. And yes. so he's, just, he's taunting them the whole time. And there's a bit, like, you can't see it, but um, when I was rewatching it, at one point in the Egyptian episode that exists, you know, they're squabbling, and he actually slaps the Dalek's eye stalk and makes it spin around. And I, and I think that, and little de character details like that are mm -hmm. not picked up no. on the printed page. No. So even though the casting of Kevin Stoney is racially problematic, he added a lot to the role. Oh, God, yeah. And, yeah, absolutely. You know, and that's I think the that's only where thing. a lot of the fun in the character. Didn't he win an award for Best Villain or something for me? Um, I think I read that somewhere. Probably did. Um, from like, Doctor Who magazine? Well, no, no. I think like TV voters at the time um, oh, he voted might have him. Done. There's he something that, that's, that's sticking in my yeah, mind. Yeah, this is why I'm called a so-called expert, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> um, this is why I didn't want to sit in the middle. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> yes, but um, I'll, have to, I'll have to look that up, but I'm almost certain that is ringing a bell. That's ringing several bells. Though that could have been for his... Um, no, you're right. He did. He did, I remember this now, because I was thinking it could have been uh, his character in The Invasion, which is a few years down the line, but no, you're right, it's this one. Um, Allison, do us a favor, and um, Google Mavic Chen. <laughs> I was expecting go to hell. No, 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 God, no, not I yet. No, anyway. I don't have any uh, screenshots of his dialogue. I remember no. enjoying it as we went through and finding that he was, a, I love good bickering dialogue, but I don't actually uh, yeah. know any. Yeah, I just want you to do a uh, Google search for an image of Mavic Chen, because... Every, I, I'm assuming everybody in this room knows what this guy looks like on screen. And, yeah, Allison doesn't know quite how problematic that character is yet. I have a, a pretty... Oh, here, here it is. Thank you. Um, that's him in the middle. Oh, my. 
Yeah, of course, there's the um, cookies and cream Oreo man on the side, but uh, <laughs> thank you for that. Okay, so I... <laughs> typed in Mavic CH and Google auto filled in Mavic chin racist. <laughs> so, you're go. not the first to have this thought. <laughs> and, and, and I'm not even getting last. very good reception. <laughs> but that, it was like, oh, right on. Oh, you want yeah. EN racist. There oh, yeah, absolutely. We also need to talk about the Daleks themselves and whether this is really that much of a master plan <laughs> or whether it's just the bog standard Daleks doing what they do when they're bored which is exterminate the universe and just, and, uh, ooh, I almost said it. This is a family-friendly podcast today, whether they're willing to just screw around with time. I think Peel created an impression of a very elaborate, layered plot of double crosses and triple crosses that mm-hmm. probably wouldn't hold together upon re-examination, but as you're reading through, it creates the appropriate impression that they are playing the long game. Okay. They're not nearly as interesting as the supporting villains. No. And, like, the thing that as far as the master plan. Okay, we know that Mavic Chen gave them the terranium, which was essential, and there's so many schoolboy jokes about where they found that, you know? <laughs> um, exactly. But I'm curious about these other, the, the, the alliance of Baeus and Trantis, and oh. what, why did they even need that alliance? I, I it's, it's not clear why they needed this alliance and why any of them would... It's, it seems very foolish for them to ally themselves with the Daleks, like, you're going to take over the universe and you'll take us over. So the motivations, I mean, I think it was a good excuse to have some bizarre creatures mm-hmm. on the screen yeah. and there's all the debates about which delegate is which and it's inconsistent <laughs> between Mission to the Unknown and Daleks Master Plan, right. but um, so I think those are, that's what I want to learn more about, are those yeah. guys. But and Peel does give us a little bit, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. go ahead. I, no, I, was, oh. I was just going to say, Peel actually gives us a little bit more about them, but not quite as much as we should know, such as why on earth they would do, why on earth, why they would do this at all. Go ahead, Alison. They're told they're going to be part of a consortium that's running more of the universe than they currently do. Yeah. So they, 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 are, they are given a lust for power that this plan does appeal to. Yeah, I suppose so. But yeah, it's true that they're not nearly, oops, my computer froze. They are not nearly as, uh, they are not nearly as fleshed out as they could be. Technical difficulties, folks. Sorry about that. Oh, good. It continued recording. Oh, thank Christ. Okay. Ooh, that could have been bad because we are a podcast and we need to uh, record. Um, how do they compare to their the last time we saw them in the chase? Well, they're much more competent because they actually succeed in killing people. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, apart from scaring away On the... the resume. It's, I mean, okay, they kill people on the chase, but again, that's a story that's played for laughs, so yeah. you never take them seriously. Exactly. And here, the consequences are huge. Yeah. And so there is a sense that they, the stakes are higher, the, it's you know, all of time, they've got something called the time destructor, and they, they, they're a much more chaotic force, yeah. because they don't just want to conquer, they just want to destroy, and then it's kind of left to, the, and then what do you do, Daleks? Mm-hmm. You know, how does, how does this make your life better, Daleks? Exactly. And and doesn't, I, so there's, there's no point. I think it works because people are dying, mm-hmm. and good people, and people that we like. Okay. So I think so it's not like some random Eridean from the chase. Took no. it as they have very sophisticated plans, but very animalistic motivations for them. Oh yeah. They want power. They want to destroy. They want to kill. But they're not uneducated. No. So I, I thought that was a nice mix that gave us a menace. Okay. About. All right. 
with education. And now we need to talk about, God, we need to talk about the Christmas episode. The Feast of Stephen. The Feast of Stephen, <laughs> indeed. Peel renders it here in loving detail, even to the point... Okay, here's some backstory <laughs> for that. Detail only a mother could love. Yeah, yes. exactly. Well, it does come down to that, because the original plan was for the um, cast of another popular TV show called Zed Cars to be part of this. And the producers of Zed Cars said, no, uh we don't want to be brought down by associations with you. <laughs> So they didn't do it. And what Peel ended up doing was naming the policeman characters in the novelization after actors from Zed Cars, which is oh. hilarious. One of them being Brian Blessed. Yes, he was, good God, there was echo on that. Um, so that's what they wanted to cross over with this episode. Does this book gain anything by having this episode novelized? Yes. Okay. I mean, I think the only thing that it, as a book as a standalone, it seems to be a strange detour, but it does give that time for Sarah to become more integrated with the crew. Agreed. And there's a bit of a tension relief. They've gone through this madcap adventure that's, and then they have Christmas together. And so she becomes part of the TARDIS family. So I think it works there. And I think we're, this goes back to that old age-old question um, with all of these is, what is the purpose of a novelization? Right. As a novel, it seems completely unnecessary and you think, don't include it. But if the purpose is to accurately render what was on screen and again, satisfy the curiosity, because, especially because this episode is no longer existing, exactly. then I remember again, first reading and, oh, this is what it was like, this makes a lot more sense. When I'd see the cast list in um, the program guides, you know, who Darcy Tranton is, or Blossom <laughs> Lefavre, or, or Vamp, or Chic. You know, I didn't understand what those were doing in a Dalek story. Well, what Bing Crosby is doing in the right. Dalek story. Right, and so now it made a lot more sense, mm -hmm. and so my, my curiosity was satisfied whether it actually adds much to the story or whether the, I don't think the incidents themselves, it's, it's comedy, and especially the second half is slapstick, which never translates well on the written page. Right. So, that it's kind of dumb in that regard. Okay, Allison? It's a series of visual jokes that are really hard to make funny in prose. I really yeah. did not enjoy it at all. I felt like it was medicine. Uh, but, <laughs> but he has the challenge, though, that this is an episode that broadcasts in the mid-60s, mm -hmm. and many of these references are already, you know, 30, 40 years in the rearview mirror, even though some of them are more contemporary to the time. 50 years later, we're not going to get all the jokes yeah. that he's making unless, you know, we're, you know, classic television buffs or classic or classic comedy buffs. What I do like it's about it... It's a possible task. He does as well as he could with what's incompatible with the format. What I, what I do think is really cool is um, how metatextual it is and self-aware. Mm -hmm. Because obviously there's the famous bit where Hartnell turns to the camera and says, and Merry Christmas to you at home, which yes. obviously doesn't happen here. But we get a version of it. But there is that reference to, um, and I think the line is retained, where there's the kind of homeless guy in the Macintosh, and he yes. says, they keep moving my house. And the doctor says, I met you in the marketplace in Jaffa. And it's the same actor. And it's the same actor who played <laughs> Ben Dahir in the Crusade. Right. And so there is that little nudge, nudge, wink, wink, which shows that you know, this idea that postmodern jokes only started appearing in New Who or with Douglas Adams. No, it was no, their way no, no. back. It's a joke that you're never going to get reading the novel. No, If you're no. not pillaging Wikipedia and IMDb at the same time. Right, no. I wonder which of these characters were played by the same actor in the previous <laughs> episode. Where that was sort of very funny on screen, but Peel is almost doomed in trying to recreate that humor here. 
I wonder if fans at the time would have... Well, no, we probably would have, wouldn't we? We would have known those references. Probably through Doctor Who magazine. Andrew Pixley would have written something, and we would know it. Or it would come out in the review in Doctor Who magazine. They'd probably say... Well, they didn't have Doctor Who magazine in the 60s. No, no, no. I mean, at the time that the novelization... No one was oh, alive oh, right, then. right. What? No one was alive then. <laughs> <laughs> Well, not the printed word yet. Not you, young whippersnappers, <laughs> that's for damn sure. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I kind of feel somewhere between these two on the Christmas episode because part of me doesn't want it to be there, and part of me says it has to be there because you're reproducing an episode that does not exist. Even down to getting that ridiculous scene on the cricket pitch, which I hated in the televised version. Which doesn't that happen in the second, in the New Year's Day episode? It does. It does. But it happens so briefly on the printed page, it's like, oh, thank God it's over with. But it's 10 minutes of screen time in the uh, televised version. It's like, oh my God, okay, we get the joke. These guys don't even realize what they're seeing and they want to play cricket. Cricket is boring. We get it. But, Thank you um, for recreating the experience of being bored while watching cricket. I, I, I do my best. Well, that's what I'm here for. That's something else that's missed. I mean, it's more about, it's not the Christmas, but it's the New Year's Day episode. But what, even on audio, it works very well where they land in Trafalgar Square and there's the countdown to the oh, New Year. Yes. Juxtaposed with the docks counting down to take off on yes. that. And that doesn't work in the prose version at all. But no. you could imagine that would work very well in... Right. You know, on screen. Well, that animated version I sent you on YouTube actually uh, intersperses some of the footage from the 1996 TV movie there. Oh. In black and white. And Fun. it's like, oh, that's nice. That's a nice little... It, because we're never told what year it is. Right. It could very right. well be 1999. Yeah. So it's a nice little touch. Um, other things. Other things you wanted to discuss because it turns out we are actually ahead of time a little bit, which is nice. We can actually just riff on this book a little bit. Books. Books. There are two of them. <laughs> these books. here booksies. These, <laughs> these here booksies. I'd like to just point out, I was saying the author recreated the interminability of being bored watching critic, uh, watching cricket, not that you made oh, us feel okay. as well, bored as we would be thank if you. we were watching well, I'm, cricket. I'm glad to know that. Well, thank God for uh, that. Because otherwise I don't get a ride home from the convention here. <laughs> I alienate Tony. Uh, so. Yeah, we've got a lovely public transport system. One of the bits that I loved... Um, I like how he added some, and in the final chapter of Mutation of Time, he does reposition thing and he ties up some loose ends that aren't tied up in the TV version, like yes. going back to Carlton on Earth and seeing how the whole situation with Chen being gone and gets resolved, you get a sense of that. Um, the other bit that just made me laugh, and I, and I didn't realize that it was unique to the book until I rewatched the episode five right. is when they go on Myra, the invisible creatures think they're all ugly. And so you've got these things <laughs> yeah. that they, they look, they go, and all they say is ugly, ugly. And the fact that creatures that don't have any sorts of visibility would maybe think anything that does is ugly. Yeah. But just the fact that they want to kill them because they're ugly, which is kind of comic, but then you realize it's not a far cry from the Daleks themselves. No. He anticipates internet trolls by years. A person you can't see <laughs> tells you that you are ugly. And it's, it, it, I don't know what it is with Terry Nation and invisible creatures, but my God, he's going to go back to that well a couple more times. Well, but this is, this is um, I mean, when we get to the John Pertwee, Frontier in Space and Planet of the Daleks are a remake of this. You've got the yeah. Mavic Chen figure, you've got the Jungle Planets, you've got the Invisible stuff, you've got these 
alien alliances. Arguably, it, it's a very different sort of story. Oh, yes. Because, but it's, he, he plays these same beats again. But I, mm -hmm. I think it works here. I think um, there's a line that was also mentioned. You don't see Sarah Kingdom being quite as ruthless because the cliffhanger to episode four, she says, aim for the head. And that's <laughs> yes. not even in there. No, so I was waiting for that. <laughs> and so I guess that was um, something that I, it was such a reversal of reading The Chase because I read the books, mm -hmm. I read the books again, kind of knew the story, and then hadn't read them, then saw the TV episodes or listened to the audio ones much later. And, but doing them side by side, I really, there must have been, if John Peel was working on the rehearsal scripts, mm -hmm. you know, how did just simple lines like the aim for the headline not being there, why is there so much difference? Is this something, I'm, I'm curious to know whether Peel said these lines don't work and he actually changed them themselves for the book mm -hmm. or whether he was operating from a different set of scripts that maybe Dennis Booner hadn't revised yet. Yeah. And so that was something that I was very curious about. Yeah, I'd still love to get him on the show at some point um, because Power of the Daleks is, is coming up and Evil of the Daleks is coming up and I'd like to get him at least before we do Evil because then, yeah, that's the last one he does, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, so we've got to get him on and ask him these questions because these are burning questions. I want to ask him why he made a mistake in the recap because what you were just talking about, those loose ends, he manages to put a uh, continuity error in because when Carlton, I call him Carlton your doorman, but uh, when Carlton is being arrested, they play back Mark Corey's original tape and it specifically mentions Mavic Chen and Carlton, oh, yeah. and that's not in the original. Right. I've actually There's had to flip back to the first book and to look to see what the uh, transcript, <laughs> the tape was well, there. And I think, and I'm sorry to kind of keep on comparing it to the TV story, because we're but I think it is a novelization. Yeah. And I think because there's so much plot, and you talked about how it wasn't as densely written, um, there's all these little details that the designers made. For instance, Carlton and all of Chen's people are all completely bald and clean shaven, and it creates a very strange, bizarre look yes. on the screen. Mm -hmm. um, some of the details of the planets, like Myra, and none of that descriptive detail is there. And it's, no. it's interesting because Peel would have had access to at least episodes five and ten. He would have. At the time. Like there's enough for the planets. So sort of the swampy planet. Right. The smell and the, the volcano cave, planet. And the water. The there's more description of the planets than I guess the people. Yeah. yeah. Yes. And I think that's what, yeah. that's why what kind of seems a little bit lifeless is the, the characters are so minorly described that you're kind of like, eh. <laughs> I can say that. I feel like he describes the peril well. Uh, mm -hmm. Like the person sort of skipping happily through the Kimball jungle that we know is full of fire-breathing plants and plants that eat you and there's a wall of fire coming this way and this person's blissfully unaware. Mm -hmm. He does balefulness well. And he does a good revelation of people's realization that something terrible is about to happen to them yes. that you don't see coming if you haven't seen the adaptation. So I think Brett says at one point, um, oh, this doesn't make sense. Oh, no, it did make sense. A terrible, dirty kind of sense. And yes. I think that the characters are maybe two notes, possibly even three rather than one, definitely not four or more notes. I agree, they're quite flat, but it works for the purpose of plotting. But he stretches that to its maximum uh, attenuation. Okay. All right. Well, this is probably as good a time as any 
to switch to, well, usually on the show, we go to goodreads.com for online reviews of the book written by other readers and follow up with our own ratings. We're not going to read you any other reviews. We're just going to tell you what the average rating for each of the two volumes was and see where our own scores line up with that. The average rating for these novels out of five stars, or as Allison puts it, all of literature throughout all time, is 3.84 and 3.91, respectively which are far higher than most of the books we've read so far. So I'm going to ask for your uh, ratings as briefly as possible. Allison? You told me you were not going to do this. <laughs> <laughs> well, I always sound like the mean one because um, I'm comparing it to a pretty wide swath. I'd say, you know, 1.5 or 2, which, once again, I don't mean as an insult at all. Right. I was dreading all this homework I was assigned by Mr. Witt <laughs> and quite enjoyed it. Um, but saying he does the most possible with thin characters is, I guess, not the highest praise either. Okay. Uh, but I think he gets a lot of memorable images out of some pretty thin source material. Okay, Trey? Okay, and I use a different evaluation system because I'm looking at a, what is a job of a novelization and given sure. the monumental task. Yeah. So I'd say easily 4, 4.5, I think. Really? For, as, I think as a novelization, you know, the, the task of adapting 13 stories, if we include Mission to the Unknown mm -hmm. episodes, into two volumes, trying to get all that plot, especially to people... At the time when he wrote it, most people wouldn't have seen any of the episodes, even the surviving ones, mm -hmm. and would have been familiarized. And I had no idea what the story was about. And after I had read it for the first time, I could say, oh, that's what Dalek's master plan was about. I had right. some mental images. I knew who the characters were. The story was clear. It was exciting. Mm -hmm. It m was the closest possible rep replication of watching the TV series that would have been. So I think he's very successful in that regard. And if that's a criteria of what a novelization should do, then I think, yeah, maybe four, maybe 4.5. Certainly it's okay. not a five-star one, but no, no, because it's a good novelization. Yeah, that's like David Whitaker territory. Yeah. Yeah. And for me, yeah, I'd have to say I'm somewhere between the two of you because I was surprisingly... Um, I was surprised by how enjoyable it was, and it was an improvement on the televised version in many regards. It wasn't as much a boondoggle. Um, certainly didn't give it as high as the chase, though. I gave it a 3.8. For some reason, I'm having to go through these digital scores now, 3.8 out of 5, just because, yeah, so that's about right. Okay, well, um, we've got a little bit of time, so what we want to do is we want to thank you for coming. We have a giveaway. Um, we gave you, when you came in, some flyers. Well, some of you may have gotten flyers off the table. Um, if you look on that flyer and you look at the top that says Doctor Who, one of you has a flyer that has the O in Doctor Who blacked out. And... Oh, that would be Elijah. Okay. And now we're going to play The Price is Right. So yes, we are. So, Elijah, you get a prize. The good news is it is a hardback doc, uh, Doctor Who target novelization. The bad news is it's Galaxy 4. <laughs> so this is yours, <laughs> young man. Very bad life. Enjoy you deserve it. this. Yes, so there you go. Yay. Everybody clap. Yes, there we are. And there should be another one out there with another letter of the... Yes, the H is blacked out, so that would be you. Please, step up. You also are lucky in that you're getting an audio collection from the BBC Audio Collection, but you are also getting Galaxy 4, so <laughs> my apologies to you and congratulations. So thank you so much for coming. Let me get the outro music playing because I actually have it here, believe it or not. 
I don't know how well this is going to work because I didn't time it. Oh, shoot. And I almost swore Good family-friendly save. I know, I know. Oh, God, where is it? Come on, come on, you can do this. It's in This is the one Thank you. Thank you, but I think we got it now. There we go. Does that work? Yes. Is it playing? Yes. Thank you, guys. And thank you, fellow time travelers, for giving us your valuable time. Next time, we travel back to France for John Lucarotti. John Lucarotti. For John Lucarotti's novelization of The Massacre. In the meantime, if you liked what you've heard here, like us on Facebook. We're at Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast, all one word with no spaces. Follow us on Twitter. We're at DWTargetBC. Or subscribe to us via the podcast provider of your choice. They are all there on those flyers, every single last one of them. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you, Chicago Tardis, for having us. And enjoy your travels and enjoy the con. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye. Let's hope not, because otherwise I'd be so upset. Okay, so we have just left Chicago TARDIS. Just paid the toll, going back to Chicago, because of course, as you know, you have to pay a toll to get into the city. God, do you ever have to pay a toll? Um, <clears throat> we just finished watching uh, 337, which is fun. Uh, so, Allison, this was your first Doctor Who convention. What did you think of the whole thing? My first Doctor Who convention and my first... Uh Property specific, oh, that's a gross term. Convention. Oh, so, like, specific. I've been well, I've been to comics conventions, but never like a specifically Star Trek or Doctor Who oh, or, or you know, specific show or property franchise. So, yes, yes, yes. So it was a lot of fun um, to do a Friday one. It was uh, low key. Um, I, I got the feeling that if I really put my mind to it, I could have met anyone there. Um, everyone very friendly, and uh, I did not feel uh, shamed for my ignorance. I tried not to broadcast my ignorance, but I found it to be well, a very friendly environment. Well, I didn't, since I wasn't there for the feminism and Doctor Who panel you went to, did you ask any questions during that? Or? No, I did not. Okay. Yeah, and we also went to the uh, Doctor Who and Comics panel, which uh, was interesting. Because apparently Tony Lee was scheduled for another panel at exactly the same time in the same room. So I suppose we should be lucky that our own... Oh, God. Policeman, he's got him somebody. Um, that could have been us. We could have been excitedly shot live on the air here. Yeah, that's... Uh, oh, great. They're cutting us off. Lane Serving and cutting us off. They this are indeed. Okay. Drama in real life. This... Live from Chicago. Well, DuPage yes. County. Let me see if I can figure out how to get around this without getting us in trouble. We'll keep this recording just in case. Okay, there we go. We're fine. We're fine. Nobody got shot. We're fine. Nobody would have gotten shot, actually. It's your page, not Cook. True. So, um, was there anything about the book that you feel that we didn't discuss? 
I feel like I metabolized that book in 48 hours and the great windshield wiper of the mind has nearly erased it already. <laughs> in the eyes, out the ears. I think that I have used that quote before that I enjoyed it, but it did not stick to my ribs the way some of the others have. Yeah. I like the plotting. I, I thought that the thin, thin characters worked, if that makes sense, right. for the genre, but uh, yeah, when we did cotton books, I have like 50 screenshots of different quotes that I want to bring up part of or reference. And this one I had like 10 from 300 pages. Wow. And the only one that sticks with me now without having looked at my notes since uh, 11 o'clock this morning is, hello gentle beings. <laughs> and greetings. <laughs> <laughs> the officials from various planets. Oh, so, that's right. So I have a, a pleasant, if non-specific, memory of it. Okay. All right. I, I, I felt actually like I massively underperformed on the podcast. I don't uh, think so. Because I was sitting between the two experts, and from like sort of a literary historical uh, standpoint, I felt like I had less to contribute than ever before. I'm that's the nature so. of the story. I don't think so. Um, but the crowd was very nice and genial, and... All five of them, yes. Eight. Eight. At the high point, it was eight, yes. Did we have eight at one point? There were people who left, uh, came in early and left. Oh, uh, that's right. People, pardon me, came late and left early. That's so, right. Yes, eight was the height. And um, we we gave out some freebies, which we did not announce. We probably should have. Maybe more people would have come. Uh, in fact, we gave for Elijah. Elijah, hope you enjoy that book. We have... Uh, he won a hardback Target novelization. That's the good news. The bad news is it was the hardback of Galaxy 4. Which is sort of the lump of coal gift, I guess, for the <laughs> holiday season. A little bit, so... Uh, Steve Fodor of the Too Much Scrolling podcast was kind enough to laugh out loud till he almost threw up, it seemed like. Yes. At each of our jokes, I felt so affirmed. Me too. Because many of our jokes were not... Worthy of floor, no, floor rolling. No. He was the positive energy. And bless you, Steve, because uh, listeners, that's who you'll be hearing laughing in the background. You probably can't hear anybody else laughing. But Tony had the magnificent score of the day. Are you are you telling them? Oh, well, um, they probably heard it at the beginning of this podcast, and if they listen to the very end, they'll also hear it again because the marvelous fabulous Mr. Baker of the two Baker boys uh, recorded a uh, bumper for us, which, uh, hell, I'm going I'm to use that as more than a bumper. That is just marvelous. And he was wonderful and charming. And we have Trey Corte to thank for that because Trey Corte was basically his uh, body man this weekend. And he uh, asked him and uh, Mr. Baker said yes. And so... We have Mr. Baker greeting you at the very beginning of this podcast, which is just, I cannot tell you how over the moon I am about that, and I hope that there will be more like that at future conventions, but Colin Baker's a personal favorite of mine. If I were you, I would use it as a ringtone and the outgoing voicemail greeting, so both you and the caller are both enjoying it every single call. I know. <laughs> how many times have I played it today since recording it? Like 15 yeah, it's just, yeah. It'll take a while for that to get old. It will. I don't think it ever will. I don't think it ever will. And, uh, we, uh, Trey explained the, uh, uh, he explained the podcast to him. 
And I said, yes, Mr. Baker, we'll probably be uh, doing your books in about five years' time. And he said, well, I, I hope I'll be blessed to be still be here by the time you get there. And I was like, I, I hope you will too, because we'd love to have you on the show. Because that would be lovely. Um, especially since I'm trying to remember which book he wrote, a, um, not a prologue, um, an introduction it was one of his uh, novelizations, <coughs> but I can't remember which one. I think it was the two doctors. But yeah, that would be lovely. <coughs> Pardon me. Let the record show that we arrived at the Weston uh, in the Greater Yorktown Mall region at 9:15 in the morning, and we left at almost exactly 11 p.m. So. Yes, it has been a long fucking day. And I've been waiting. I've been sitting on that f bomb all day. <laughs> it was a very friendly, family-friendly environment. It was including a fucking family. What I could only describe as an all-ages rave. Which was, oh yes. <laughs> well, we saw the intro to that, and then we were watching Brighton Rock in the uh, in one room, hearing it come through the door and through the wall in the other. And it was, it's not like they were having a great time. They were. Well, <laughs> uh, apparently that group that did the music to uh, the that version of the theme with all those clips that we watched, mm -hmm. um, also did their own versions of uh, some of the incidental music, because I recognized the music, Oh yeah. but I recognized that they were also putting a backbeat to it, and I was like, oh, that sounds yeah. awesome. Meanwhile, we were in the next March room. And whatnot, yeah. Yes, we were in the next room enjoying William Hartnell's 1947 movie, Brighton Rock. With Richard Attenborough, Which, whom I never would have recognized without no. the titles. Oh my god, I know. Richard Attenborough, back when he was young and, well, semi-semi, oh. though, as I, at one point I turned out Allison and I said, if he's about to be playing a 17-year-old, then I'm an oval. <laughs> I, d I did infer he was supposed to be, it was sort of like a John McCain moment, where, yes. where apparently when he and Mrs. McCain first met, he said that he was like 35, and she said she was 24, but they were like 19 and 23. I thought it was supposed to be that sort of a plot point. It's one of Possibly. the grand greens I haven't read. So. It, was, it, was, it was quite strange. You know, even stranger is seeing Hartnell, whose stories we've been watching, also relatively young, because um, I, I kind of did the math while we were sitting there, Alice and I. Hartnell was your age at the time that he did that movie. Really? Yeah. Must have been some hard, hard living. Oh, God, yeah. Well, you really? saw, the, you saw the cigarette. So, for those listening and wanting to steal my identity, I just turned 38 uh, last month. And, and I think I did the math right. Yeah, so, my goodness, I would have had to have lived much harder. I would have thought he was more like at least 50. No. So, well, no, he was maybe 40, maybe say at least 45. He was like in his 50. 50s when he did Doctor Who. Yeah. Um, because if I remember correctly, and I'm sure our listeners will correct me, because I'm, I'm driving right now, I shouldn't even do, be doing this. He's using sure a hands-free device, like a responsible yeah. motorist. Exactly. I'm not looking it up on Wikipedia, and I couldn't get a signal in the, uh, in the, um, I will save the day. Center, what, are, what are we looking at? I believe Hartman was born in 1910. Because I know was born in, no, that's wrong. Kurtwee, I think, was born in 1911. I know Trout was born in 1920, which is a nice round figure, but if you look up Cardinal... And suspense is killing everyone. It really is. And Loading they, it. 
1908. 1908, there we go. And Brighton Rock was 1947. So he's 39 there. Okay. So I wasn't too far off. So I've got a year to cram in all my debauchery and substance abuse. <laughs> Possibly live, I was saying a tent, but just in a tree. I don't want to know. That one close-up, when you see him from the side, I was like, he looks like the doctor there. He's, yeah, he, he has always been this age. And now it was just really hard living. That was something that Hartnell's uh, uh, wife almost left him over multiple times the uh, alcoholism, well, the hard drinking. I'm not sure it crossed the line into actual alcohol abuse, but it certainly didn't help his uh, later or two. I don't know, if it's threatening to break up your family, I think that counts as a problem. Probably. <laughs> I would say so, you're right. Uh, so, yeah, it's it's just hard to, whenever I see those early Hardell performances where he's playing army sergeants or what have you, it's hard to square that away in my head with this doddering, sometimes absent-minded, old alien man who is, if you think about it, even though he's crotchety and all that junk, he's also incredibly lovable. And, oh, I forgot to tell you that. That's something I wanted to talk about with the book today. Um, when they go down into, when they're on a, a, a Kimball, and the doctor's leading the way, and they run into Maddox Chen after he has faked his own death. You want to hear something interesting? By all means. Hartnell is not there the entire time. It's the weirdest thing. For some reason, Hartnell goes missing about halfway through episode 11. And so it's Stephen and Sarah are, you know, uh, freeing the delegates, talking them into attacking the Daleks on their own. All that stuff that's given back to the Doctor because this is from an earlier, earlier version of the script. Is he just not scripted in there? Or? No. Well, I think... <sighs> He'd had enough and they were tired of trying, trying to wrangle him? Well, it's, it's unlike what's going to happen with the Massacre because the Massacre... Cardinal had to be written out of episode two for a holiday because of his you know, schedule. Uh, so that kind of futzes that story. And so this, the novelization we're going to be reading has those scenes back. But for this one, I couldn't find anything. I couldn't. Um, the closest I found was um, oh, I can't remember the name of the fan's name. But he's written extensive, uh, or she's written extensive um, bios on all the stories, and they couldn't find a reason why Hartman goes missing for that episode. But yeah, he's not there. He shows up later in the, uh, the Dalek Underground, with the time destructor, obviously, because he's the one that carries it out. He's on the back steps, smoking a joint the whole time. What? He's on the back. He has to keep that face cured, like a, like a fine hand. <laughs> yeah, I suppose that's it. Um, but yeah, I I meant to bring that up in the panel today, and I didn't. And that's the only thing I think I wanted to bring up in the panel today that I didn't get a chance to, because the rest of it is just. It basically comes down to um, Q 
appeal adds a lot more than what's on the screen, which tells you how dire that story is in so many ways. Because even you were saying you didn't feel like it was a full 12 episodes worth of plot. No, I, I was amazed. I would have to go back and guess where the, the uh, divisions would be between episodes. Yeah, and that's, that's a bit odd. I mean, it's not odd at all, really, because they, they fall really much along episode breaks. Well, and you said, was it the showrunner or the episode writer's mother-in-law said more downloads? Was there, what I want to know is, like, was there an inheritance at stake here? Like, what, <laughs> what, what was in it for him to take that, that rather the, uh, extreme advice? Never forgotten. <laughs> I think it, uh, it was Hugh Weldon, and it, I can't remember if he was, I know I said it today, but I don't have this memorized. Uh, the head of drama or something, but yeah, his mother-in-law was said to be fond of Daleks and said that they should be uh, using them much more strategically, and it's like, your idea of using them strategically is to give them 12 weeks in a row? Well, 12 weeks. You could argue that it works. I mean, here we are talking about Daleks 50 years later. This is true, and we got... Well, plus or minus eight people to come and discuss it with us. At no point was there a negative number of humans present. No, no, that was a lovely thing. There were never negative. I, I felt really bad for those poor panelists that were running a panel at the same time as 337 because I went into the room to get the rest of our flyers and apparently they'd just been sitting there shooting the shit the whole hour. I was no like, went. No, uh, it didn't look like it. I was like, you poor guys. So our, our, our scheduling could have been better, but seeing what they were going through, it could have been well, far worse. It, it was the secondary room, the very first panel of the entire event, before noon. Yes. I mean, it was like going to work or school for a relative to an entertainment true. event. True. So. And we had Peter Davison as our main, um, as our, oh, sorry, as our main competition. So yeah, I don't blame I do not blame anybody. Any warm bodies is kind of amazing. I, oh, God. I thought it was like maybe, you know, our, our friend Bart and then um, uh, Steve and then people who must hate Pete Davidson somehow. Yes. So, I'm sorry. I apologize. In my mind, I keep going back between Peter Davidson. No, I'm Pete not. Davidson of Saturday Pete Night Live and Live. Peter David, the comics writer. <laughs> and in my mind, they're like all three fusing together in this sort of unholy trinity. That, Ugh. I don't know. You could do worse. Well, that's true, but when you, when you talk about fusing any three people into an unholy trinity, I don't know if you've seen the spoof video on YouTube. It's it's a spoof on those uh, Capri Sun commercials that, uh, wow, they were running when you were a kid, too. Yeah, I remember they were, Capri Sun. Um, and in those commercials, you have them, you know, drinking the juice drink, and then they uh, turn into you know, like silvery creatures and morph together and rush off to play their reindeer games. Or oh, whatever I don't those remember well, anything quite that psychedelic. They did a spoof <laughs> of that commercial. And in that spoof, in that spoof, the three drink their drinks and they meld together and they go and they zoom, zip off this amalgam of them off to... Uh, a baseball field or whatever and they reform and they've all fused together <laughs> and then this horrible you know lovecraftian creature that then is spewing bile and biting 
body parts off their friends and all this stuff. It's just hilarious. This is not unlike the cannibalism-themed cinnamon, cinnamon toast crunch at campaign <laughs> of the last couple of years. Oh, so. yeah. Oh, yeah, exactly. I'm going the right way, aren't I? Yes, yes, you are, yes. We are now about to pass the Sears Tower on Congress Parkway. We are entering the Utara Nebula. Actually, we're going to drive through the post office. <laughs> there is a road through the post office. There is. Oh, jeez. And we're about to get... And we're about to get T-bone because yeah. somebody didn't, uh, somebody didn't see the yield sign. Hmm. Isn't this exciting? It's like Mario Kart on audio for you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Actually, I need to go over because they are right my way. You. Oh. The powder blue Volkswagen looks so sweet and innocent. It is not. It is guilty of sin. It is, especially when... <laughs> it is a menace. A woman guilty of sin is driving it. Well, oh, that's oh of you had to go woman driver with I it. Know. Well, in this case, you did get a good look at her for the cops later. So. I did, because you know, I was like... Argh. Why are they taking us down this way? Why, why are we doing life or drive? We could just go, you know what? No, it's just straight. Yeah. yeah. Gaily forward. <laughs> yes, indeed. Yes, I think we'll just do that instead. Um, now I'm we're so, going under the stock exchange. We are indeed. I was saying something, and I can't remember now. I, I, I fear they have to be entertained sometimes. <laughs> I know. All they're doing, all they're doing now, is just hearing the. Uh, now we're passing the Harold Washington Library. It has gargoyles. It does. It's got lovely gargoyles, and not the Disney kind. Um, there was something I was going to say, and I can't remember now what. But yeah, we had, um, the people who were there were quite enthusiastic, which was nice. So, thank you, Steve. Thank you, Bart. Thank you, Elijah. And I really do hope you like that book, even though, you know, it's that book. Um. I thought that book actually was interesting for all of its. It was. Painful. It was. Material. And for that matter, hardcover Target novelizations are rarer than hen's teeth anymore, so it's just as well. Besides, I wanted to get rid of the damn thing. Um, Is it cursed? No. Is it bad luck? No, no. <laughs> Is he going to die? No, no. I hope not. <laughs> Elijah, you're not going to die. Given a sufficient timeline, we all are. You'll only... It's, it's kind of like the ring. You'll only die if you read it. And then if you read it, you have to pass it on to somebody else. And you'll die of annoyance if you read it. Not months. Acute onset fatal annoyance. <laughs> exactly. Oh, good lord. Now we're passing Columbia College. We are indeed. And, and we're passing in one of my workplaces, Roosevelt University. Yeah. Though I usually don't come down here when it's quite this dark. Good lord. Passing through Grant Park once again on the poved, uh, poved mater way, the paved motorway. <laughs> the poved mater way. It has been quite the a long. It has been quite a long day. <laughs> it has indeed. Good lord. Where, when <laughs> the night Obama was elected, <laughs> I had to work, took a train into town after the class I was teaching, and literally climbed a tree to be able to try to see the stage. Really? They weren't letting any more people into the park because it was oh full. That was a big okay. night. That was a class I taught wherein the very first session, uh, our go then governor, Rod Blagojevich, mm -hmm. was arrested at 4 or 5 a.m. in the morning. <laughs> and the last session, or no, I'm sorry, it was the opposite. The first session 
our then Senator Obama was elected president in the last section. Our then governor was led away in chains. Well, cuffs. They don't think they leg ironed him. So, it was historic. Suddenly, we have turned into Chapo Trap House. Haven't <laughs> yes. We? <laughs> We're not nearly as popular, but way back in 2008, <laughs> which is nine years ago. Yeah. Sorry, guys. We are entertaining ourselves at this <laughs> point. We're actually. Not we're, drunk at all, but I slept no, three and a half not. hours last night, and boy, am I loopy. So. Oh, me too. But we are trying to stay awake to get Allison home, and then... But maybe we're helping them sleep. I used to listen to a couple of oh. podcasts that were favorites of mine when I could not oh, sleep. Oh, no, that's not So perhaps we will be soothing. That's true. Besides which, um, Rick did say he wanted to know how you felt about the con, and we're, we're doing that. Um, so, yeah, absolutely. Hopefully, are pleasing our audience. Um, I'm sorry. No, the convention runner was saying, "Oh, please give us your suggestions about a lower budget convention like ours." And my suggestion, in my heart, I did not make out loud, was keep it out of Rosemont because the Donald E. Stevens Convention Center is arguably the most depressing of venues for conventions. Agreed. So this wasn't like anything you know, especially fancy, but, uh, or inspiring, but it was not in Rosemont, and that was excellent. Yeah. So. Well, when, the first time I went, when I first met Trey years ago, um, it was not held, uh, God, I cannot remember Why are there so held. many people walking around the park at 11.15? I don't know. Who knows? Are they the muggers or the muggies? Uh, both. <laughs> they probably just hooked up for the night. But that couple did it anyway. Um, what were we saying? Um, whatever Trey will, of course, let me know at some point. Hopefully he'll listen to this. Um, the, uh... Oh, God, it's out of my head again. Um, the, uh, you know, whatever Chicago TARDIS I went to, the entire thing was held in the hotel, and it was quite nice. It was kind of like t- uh, tonight, except, well, different. The dealer's room was a bit larger, I remember. The dealer's room here was relatively small, but I still managed to buy a shit ton of stuff. Good God. Oh, lordy. And now we've run out of material. We have run out of material. They they, they might argue that we ran out of material. Let's see, we're at minute 25 now that we ran out of it 23 minutes ago. Yeah, yeah, possibly. (laughs) Thank you for your long-suffering endurance. (laughs) Oh, and we forgot. Dalton, we missed you. Baby, come back. (laughs) Well, he will be. Um, in fact, I should do an outro for this. Um, as I mentioned at the end of the actual podcast, next time we will be doing the massacre. Jenny Ingersoll And we says, don't mean reading a story, just everyone come armed. Yes, exactly. Jenny Ingersoll says that she'll be hosting that one. I mean, I don't mean hosting. I mean, she's going to let us into her house. Poor, innocent child is letting us into her house again. Uh, so Jenny may be along. Allison, definitely, I hope. Uh, Dalton, definitely. It would be weird if we record in Jenny's kitchen when she's not there. <laughs> Break into the house and record there. Be run off. Her <laughs> husband will run us off with a shotgun. Well, I did think about buying a new sonic screwdriver when I was at the uh, convention today, but I decided against it. Uh, and then after that... <laughs> I don't think it's in the spirit of the sonic screwdriver. 
driver use it for burglaries. Well, the doctor does all the time. He's constantly pointing that shit at an ATM and spewing money out Fair of it enough. when he needs it. I mean, honestly. Damn, girl. It's <laughs> we are punching. Um, and two weeks after that, we will be doing the ARC because it's Christmas time and the ARC, you know. And the animals came on two by two or whatever the hell it is. He is going to try to go around us. Okay, hopefully he won't hear us our horrible death. Okay, good. He, he came to his senses and decided not to just sit around us. Quietly at home in bed later this evening. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> not together. <laughs> Separate beds. Yes. Yes, dear <laughs> Different listeners. Different neighborhoods. That's why you're listening now, isn't it? Mm-hmm. To see whether or not this is our final last words. <laughs> Oh god, wouldn't that be terrible for her? Now we're passing the new bike fly, uh, bicycle flyover that ends in a nub where you just launch into space and then crash <laughs> on the concrete 30 feet below. <laughs> oh, that would be brilliant if it did. It well, does. It, it does for the moment. You, you're not allowed to bike up onto it. Oh, yeah. seriously? Oh, yeah, it just ends. Yeah. Oh my god. I another realize. couple of years till they finish it, you think? Well, of course it will, because priorities. Meanwhile, our priorities, dear listeners, are you. And if you enjoy this, let us know. Are you sure it's plural, our listeners? Is that no, the whole at listener? this point, I'm not <laughs> sure. I, I think we probably got one dear listener this time. Bless yourself. Oh, my dear God. Okay. So, let us know what you think. Let us know if you want more of these little extras. Let us know. Um, if you'd like us to stop doing it. Yes. <laughs> Let us know if, um, well, just let us know, you know? Yeah. Okay, so I'm going to sign off. How am I going to sign off now? Good night, gentle beings. No, we never say that. We, well, yeah. I just did. (laughs) You just did. Well, there's Allison sign off, and uh, mine is, as always, enjoy your travels, and good night. Bye-bye. I was not in visions. Sorry, stop and ask us again. Okay.